The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. It is November 17th, 2023 AD, after Dorsey, the first offensive coordinator changeover podcast for Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Enterprises. And um, the Bills made the big change. A lot of people were certain that Sean McDermott would not make this change, especially during the season. Lo and behold, uh, and as we saw him after the game Monday night at his news conference, gritting his teeth until it was a fine powder, uh, Sean McDermott woke up Tuesday morning, if he slept at all, and fired Ken Dorsey as his offensive coordinator, promotes Joe Brady to the role, at least on an interim basis. I guess he gets seven-game tryout here. Um, it's been um, it's been an interesting week at One Bills Drive, not only because of that. Um, we've heard from Josh Allen, who, to me, still looks like there's something wrong. He is playing and speaking as though he's dead inside. Uh, Stefan Diggs uh, responded to his brother's tweets that Diggs needs to get out of Buffalo. And Diggs is essentially the guy who made Josh Allen, not the other way around. Stefan Diggs talked about that at the news conference. I asked him about it. Some pointed follow-up questions uh, from Adam Benini at Channel 2. Uh, what else do we got, Jonah? What else happened out there at the Bills today? Am I missing some even some minor things uh, that normally would be newsworthy? But these Bills are five and five going up against a Jets defense that totally dismantled and demoralized Josh Allen on opening night uh, a couple of months ago. It's uh, I don't know if it's crisis time in terms of the playoffs anymore because. I think that ship may have sailed. They are going to get hot. They need a lot of help. They're up against a lot of difficult opponents here down the home stretch. What's your what's your sense as we get into this discussion? And uh, and I guess I'll let everybody know. I'll set the table. Uh, we're going to obviously talk about the Sabres. Uh, we're recording this uh, before the game at Winnipeg. Uh, they have lost Tage Thompson this week, the day that the Bills fire uh, Ken Dorsey, Tage Thompson suffers two injuries uh, in that game on Tuesday night, and he's going to be out for a while. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, local college hoops, uh, some interesting storylines developing there with UB not looking very good, St. Bonaventure stealing a win. Uh, we're also going to talk about the Carissa Thompson comments uh, from yesterday that created uh, quite a furor in the journalism world. Uh, but Jonah, let's start with uh, with these Buffalo Bills. You're out at One Bills Drive with me this week. 
you were observing these folks uh, in their natural habitat, um, or is would this be in captivity? If I'm making a zoological uh, metaphor here, I guess you'd be at, at home. You would be in your natural in your Josh Allen's natural habitat would be Fireball, California. Uh, Von Miller's natural habitat would be. in a, a Batman movie or something, something weird probably for Vaughn. Um, anyways, you saw, what were your observations? What's your, what's your feel on this team as we get into this discussion? Well, I, it's been a depressing couple of weeks, I think, for Buffalo sports fans on a number of fronts. Talk about some of the Sabres situations later. Um, but as far as the Bills, this season, uh, it was supposed to be a, you know, a Super Bowl contending team. And the Bills have slipped to mediocrity in the league and playing poorly, especially on offense over the last few weeks and needed a spark, needed something to change, to change, to course correct for this season and even going forward. And uh, it was seems pretty clear that Ken Dorsey wasn't the right person to be running the offense. I think a lot of people saw signs of that a year ago and maybe believed it was just a first-year coordinator. And as Brandon Bean said, he was drinking from the fire hose and some hope that there'd be some adjustments and he would be better in year two. They were better in some weeks earlier in the season, but clearly, as you summed up in a really, uh, I think, poignant story for The Athletic before Ken Dorsey got fired, the lack of fun and creativity and exciting offensive plays and just, the thrill of watching Josh Allen and the Bills play the way they had for several years with Brian Dable as the coordinator and a little bit more of that last year had been missing. And I think this was a move that maybe this is easy to say in hindsight, but a move that probably happened two or three weeks too late that the Bills needed this jump start on offense and a jump start and that sense of urgency that a coaching change in midseason can create. You earlier. mentioned that joyless that joylessness that the Bills are playing with. I just want to interject here because I think I'm trying to feather this point in into the larger thing. Um, Highmark Stadium was dead. It was uh, I we did the um, the pregame show for uh, Channel Four in the uh, Channel Four suite. Uh, so I had to walk through the concourses to get from the press box to this suite and then back again. And this is a half hour before the game, 40 minutes before the game. People are filing through the gates like they're going shopping at the Galleria Mall. I mean, it was not, there was no life. Um, people were quiet. It was it was thin, I thought. I didn't think there were many fans for that point in the game. And I, you're probably not tailgating as much because a lot of people are coming from work to go to the game on a Monday night. I get that. It's a little bit of a different dynamic. Uh, but I also saw, saw a story, um, I think it was also on Channel 4, uh, in which they talked to the owner of uh, Danny's, uh, the restaurant there at the corner of uh, Big Tree and Abbott. And he said that his restaurant was dead Monday night before the game. There weren't as many people parking in his in his parking lot or tailgating. He had a lot of empty spots. Um, yeah, I think that the fans were even heading into that game against Denver, f reflecting what they've been seeing on the, on the field, the joylessness that's coming from these guys, um, whether it be Josh Allen or anybody else, or just the, the, the vibe coming from the team. 
Um, it's uh, I was surprised to see it going into a game that the Bills had to win on Monday night football, seven and a half point favorites before they head into this stretch against really tough opposition. The Bills had to stack these these two wins here against Denver and then Sunday against uh, the Jets. And the fans were almost like they were showing up out of obligation. It was it was strange to me, and the game kind of bore itself out. It was flat up until the very the Bills didn't lead until the last couple of minutes of the game. I'm sorry, I I, I thought I was just going to interject quickly, and then I knocked you off your pace there, Jonah. Well, no, you make good points, which just makes it more difficult for me to try to come up with more good points when you kind of nail it all. But yes, it was. It did feel like a game in December during like the drought when the Bills were either out of playoff contention or very close to being so. And there was a lot less juice from the fans and a lot less, uh, you know. Well, even during the drought, those crowds were crazier, I thought, because you went there to tailgate. You weren't going there to watch the game. The game was just an excuse to get together and get bombed and to party in the parking lot. And it was a one o'clock kick almost always. People were coming into that game super rowdy. But yeah, it was... So even the I think even during the drought era the, the the crowds were more because of alcohol mostly but they were they were way more energetic during the drought than what we saw Monday night. Yeah, I think maybe there's a function of you know primetime games can be fun and exciting but playing so many of them in a row disrupting people's schedules and it was a Monday when everybody was working I think that That's maybe contributed point. somewhat into this not being as electric of an environment as maybe we're used to from Bill's games, but certainly the way the Bills are playing and the ominous clouds hanging over the fact that, you know, I think I think the fans fired Ken Dorsey weeks ago. And there was a general belief from a lot of us in the media and a lot of people following this team that this was happening, you know, anytime soon. And the next time the Bills had a loss or a poor offensive performance, that that would be the end for Ken Dorsey. It is interesting to wonder if the Bills don't have 12 men on the field on that last field goal or if they somehow find a way to win that game but still have the same offensive malaise if Sean McDermott would have decided that a change was needed or if coming off a win, uh, you know, you keep rolling with it. Um, But what I don't think is I don't think the season's over. I I think it's definitely in peril, and if you look at the schedule and – the Bills' record and the playoff odds, it's definitely not a uh, great situation. But this still is a very talented team with one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And if they can figure things out on offense and get back to the team that they were earlier in the season and the team that they have the potential to be, I don't think there's any reason that they can't compete with and perhaps win a game against the Eagles or the Chiefs or the Cowboys. And it might be too much to ask that the Bills win – you know, five of the last seven games or six of the last seven games to make it into the playoffs. But I do think they can win enough games to keep this hope alive and stay in the hunt as much as Bills fans don't want to hear that in this era. That dreaded three-word phrase, in the hunt. As much as some of these losses they've had have been surprising, I think they have it in them and have the talent and have the experience and the ability to have a surprising win. And that's why you would make a coaching like change like this midseason to spark the offense to change the trajectory of the season and hope that that leads to uh, you know a stronger finish than they've had in this midseason malaise you're already seeing some of that um 
narrative, nar- narrative is not the right word, uh, that sentiment uh, of this season's over. The more games we lose, the better. Get the get a really good receiver in this draft class. Uh, so what? You know, shut at, shot Josh Allen down. Um, I said, sh- let me rephrase that. I'm I'm really stumbling over my words today for some reason. Shut Josh Allen down. Uh, whatever's wrong with his uh, shoulder must be a real big problem because of the way he's playing. Uh, and just go ahead and go through the motions, lose some games, and uh, pack it in, and let's come back next year. Um, I, I don't obviously don't agree with that, but you're starting to see that already at five and five. If they don't steal a game against the Eagles or the Chiefs or I guess the Cowboys, they'd be favored against. So would you be stealing a game against the Cowboys uh, on December 17th at home? Probably not. Um, but I did do that exercise with um, with Bet Online, in which I had them give me some provisional spreads for the Bills' remaining schedule. And they're the underdog for the last six games, every road game, they would be the underdog. And that was before the Denver game. Those, those uh, spreads were calculated for me. So it might be even different. Uh, It might be even worse now, but I still think they'd be favored in the games that they were favored and, and not in the games they were not. So Las Vegas doesn't think much of the bills playoff chances. Yeah, but I guess I'm bringing be it up because I'm Sam kind yeah. of preparing. Get ready for the should we just go ahead and lose every all the rest of the games conversation because as the season goes on here over in the next three or four weeks, I think we're going to be hearing that debate a lot more, uh, whether it be on social media or at the bar or on local radio or first take. Yeah, well, that's a dumb argument, especially this early in the season when they're not eliminated from playoff contention. They're still in the mix. Look, the Bengals have lost Joe Burrow for the season, had the same record as the Bills have right now. I do think there is some difficulty for the Bills to make the playoffs, but they're not out of it. And if they get hot and they win five or six of these remaining games, they will be in the playoffs, where I think it gets uh, where it seems to be a fool's errand or that's not the metaphor i'm looking for but where it seems to be hopeless is believing that this bills team can turn it around enough to make a run in the playoffs and then they're probably not going to have any home playoff games you're talking about a team that has to go and win three road games in the playoffs and with the injuries they have on defense and von miller not coming back to being the player he's supposed to be how many key players and high price players the bills are going to have to play without josh allen not being himself it just doesn't seem like the Bills can get back to that pinnacle of being a Super Bowl contender, but I don't think it makes sense to give up on their chances of being a playoff team. And within the Bills organization and locker room, they're not going to tank. There's no really point for them to pull Josh Allen out of the lineup and start gunning for a higher draft pick until you're eliminated from the playoffs. And even just from the entertainment and the fan experience and storytelling, you know, you go through one bad stretch in the middle of the season, you're five and five and you pack it in and then don't try for the last seven games. That seems kind of foolish to me. And may, maybe there's a blessing in disguise factor if the Bills do have an offseason and they do get a higher draft pick. And, you know, there could be 
next year you could be looking at it like these losses benefited in that way but to plan out and tank toward the end of the season right now seems kind of foolish I agree. I think it's silly, but I was just saying, get ready because it's coming. You know, those those conversations are coming uh, as people, uh, I think, are because of uh, how dead the stadium was, because of how fed up the fan base is after the loss to now be five and five uh, and mathematically uh, on the outside looking in and all the simulations are saying, really bad things about the Bills' chances to make the playoffs. I think the next stage for fans is blow it all up. I mean, we saw it last year when they made the playoffs and navigated one of the most difficult stretches that an NFL team ever has navigated. Uh, and after they lost to Cincinnati in the playoffs, fans wanted them to blow it up. Uh, so I think we're just going to see a lot of disgust and, and outrage, and it's going to be – uh, I think rather predictable how the fans um, channel uh, their rage. Uh, obviously, yeah. they're going to want Sean McDermott fired. There's probably going to be a chunk of people that want Brandon Bean replaced. Um, you know, Josh Allen isn't what we thought he was. He's only good. He's not going to be able to get us to a Super Bowl. I'm projecting, you know, what people are going to be saying. Um, Stefan Diggs has to go because I think if things get really sideways down the home stretch, people are going to get upset with Stefan Diggs and whatever he does or does not do on or off the field. Um, it's going to be time to move on from certain members, uh, important members of the defense, Jordan Boyer, Micah Hyde, uh, Tredavious White. Uh, he's no good anymore. He's got two significant leg injuries he's coming back he's getting older time to move on from him I, I think there's just going to be a total overhaul mentality that we're going to be coping with uh from uh from the from the fans I think I mean I, you're not going to see a lot of those stories from me I mean maybe I'll contemplate it here or there in terms of uh what should or shouldn't happen but or what could happen but no I, I don't think that uh the bill should be tanking for a better draft pick, but it's coming. That conversation's coming. I think that's uh, a conversation you have in week 17 or 18 when it's really out of reach and you start calculating how losses can maybe play out better for you than wins. But well, know, losing on purpose, Joan, I think from a psychological standpoint, losing on purpose is easier to take than showing um, for, for, for somebody who's really super invested in the team. I'm saying uh, it's easier to say, well, we're losing because we're trying to lose and that's good for the team as opposed to tuning in every week at 425 p.m. because the Bills are a really good team. They now play at that time slot instead of at one o'clock automatically. So the next one, two, three, four games are at 425 p.m. before uh, an 8 p.m. game on a Saturday night uh, in Los Angeles against the Chargers. But um, you're going to be tuning in at 425 if you're a Bills fan still with that hope and that hope, as uh, as we learned in Shawshank Redemption, is a dangerous thing. And take away the hope. Just go ahead and take away our hope. Uh, and then we can enjoy these losses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say if any, I would say to you, if you're being serious about any of this, and any Bills fans that are feeling this way and, and thinking the situation is as dire as you're laying it out to, you know, maybe bump up your vitamin D consumption and get out 
in some fresh air and find a new hobby and try to stop wallowing in the depression that a team that's five and five and probably isn't going to win the Super Bowl is making you feel that depressed about the state and the existence of NFL football in your city because I, you know, they're not out of the playoff contention yet. There is still a way the Bills can backdoor into the playoffs and probably not get to the Super Bowl, but I don't think you can totally rule out that they still have one of the better rosters and collections of top end talent in the league, even with some of the injuries. And, you know, you got to ask yourself, what does this team exist in your life for? Is it only to win the Super Bowl, which, oh, by the way, they've never done before. And, uh, you know, you can't really count on the fact that they ever will at any point in your lifetime. Uh, if you want the Bills to be an entertaining team to follow and to watch and to root for and to kind of ride along, you know, some of these losses and dips and valleys in the seasons might make it a more fun season to follow than a team that just wins every week and you're looking ahead to the AFC championship game from September 1st and on, you know, this is a real season. And I think the more depressing thing about the way the bills are playing is the way the bills are playing and the, the lack of fun and joy and personality from the players that you come to expect. And that even when the bills have won games against the giants or the Buccaneers in recent weeks, they've played with that same, you know, depressed nature and it's just not the same fun experience with this team but you know they can win this game and if they happen to pull out that game in philadelphia they're seven and five going into the bye week i don't think any bills fans should be looking at it and saying oh i wish we would have lost those games and i wish we were tanking and going for a higher draft pick at this point so jonah are you predicting victories over the jets and the eagles heading into the bye week I don't know if I'd go so far. I do think that they're going to beat the Jets at home, and, and you just got to hope that this offense coordinator shake up, shakes things up a little bit. And if not, then maybe there's deeper problems. But while I would stop short of predicting that the Bills will win these next two games, I certainly think they could, and I do think that I would predict that the Bills – well, you already said the Cowboys game isn't stealing win, but I think the Bills are going to steal one of these wins. I think they're good enough to potentially beat the Eagles or potentially beat the Chiefs coming off of the bye week and at least change the trajectory of the season to get a win that most people are penciling in as a loss, make up for one of these losses that they should have won and keep themselves alive and in the hunt and feeling good about the team and the season and the roster and the leadership for at least another few weeks. Yeah, and they're going to have to steal one to, to make the playoffs or two. And then finishing at Miami is going to be difficult. Uh, I think that we're getting to a point where Bills fans are going to need to hope that Miami has nothing to play for uh, in week 18 um, and rests to a tag of Aloha and Tyreek Hill and, and a few guys uh, just to make it that much easier. I don't know if Mike McDaniel's the type to do that, um, but we're getting to that point because that game could be the decider. That could be what what determines if the Bills get in or stay home. And at Miami is going to be difficult. Yes, the Bills have the Dolphins number. You can't count on that, just like the Jets can't just count on having Josh Allen's number. Uh, at some point, Josh Allen's going to get hot against the Jets, and at some point the Dolphins are probably going to get hot against the Bills. But um but, I want to talk thing, about. I, I just want to add one more point. Some of the the doom and gloom negative talk that you're parroting that you think Bills fans might uh, 
expressed in a kind of a perverse way. That's part of the fun of being a Bills fan. I think there's some fans that enjoy the the stress and anxiety that comes with a bad bill season or an in the hunt season or a drought like season. And you're seeing fans kind of lean into that. And maybe it is more fun to ask for the coach to be fired or say, everybody's got to get cut than it is to just kind of follow along with this team when everything's going great. I always make the analogy about uh, with uh, sports being a reality show. So in the, in the television space, it is like watching The Sopranos or The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad. And part of the joy of those shows or what made them so riveting is you could tune in on any week and one of your favorite characters was going to get killed off. You know, so there's that, you know, the uh, the shock of it, you know, the yeah, you don't want you didn't want to see. Uh, I can't think of a good character like who who just got, you know, Christopher, you know, you didn't you, you didn't think that Tony was going to kill his nephew, but he did. And it was riveting TV. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I think that is part of the show. Um, Stefan Diggs, uh, he. Uh, his brother, Trayvon Diggs, uh, who plays for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, interception leader a couple seasons ago, and all-pro defensive back. Uh, this isn't the first time he has tweeted about his brother and getting him out of Buffalo. Uh, he did so also during the um, the minicamp controversy uh, in which uh, Sean McDermott uh, said he was very concerned about Stefan Diggs not being at uh, minicamp and Everything that unfolded after that, Trayvon was on Twitter talking about how his brother needs to get out of there. Other players in the NFL were begging him to come and play it with their team. Uh, and now Trayvon Diggs is at it again after the Bills lost to the Broncos on Monday night. Trayvon Diggs saying you got to get 14 out of there. And then on Tuesday morning, uh, implying that uh, Josh Allen made Stephon Diggs and not vice versa. Or excuse me, that Stephon Diggs made Josh Allen and not vice versa. Um, so when Stefan Diggs uh, spoke yesterday, I asked him about that. Uh, and he mentioned, I mean, fair, fair response. I, he didn't, uh, he didn't bristle at the question, but uh, he said, uh, it's a family matter. Granted, Trayvon Diggs made it a public matter uh, by choosing to put it on social media. But uh, Stefan Diggs said that his opinions on this are a family matter. Uh, and he did not dispute what his brother said or say he publicly disagree, or he just said, my brother's just like any other fan and said what he said. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, his brother's an NFL player. So I think if any other NFL player of prominent prominence was tweeting these thoughts it would be something to pay attention to is this what other star players around the league believe about Stefan Diggs and, and the the natural assumption is that Chavon Diggs is expressing opinions that Stefan Diggs holds but is not saying publicly and it fits with off-season narratives that came out of Stefan Diggs uh, OTA minicamp holdout and national reports that Stephon Diggs was unhappy with the Bills or Josh Allen or something about the situation, which then when Stephon Diggs sits down in front of microphones at training camp and 
denies all that and says he really is not unhappy in any way with the Bills or his situation. He's only unhappy that the team lost, you know, three regular season games and one playoff game last year. Well, they've lost five games already this year, more more losing, and Stefan Diggs does not seem to be anywhere near as unhappy as he was at the end of last season and into the offseason. But these tweets indicate that maybe he is or maybe at least his camp or his people are unhappy. And I think that, you know, in order to counter that speculation, Stefan Diggs should come out and be a bit more clear about, you know, his own feelings. And he doesn't have to speak for his brother, but speak for himself a little bit more strongly. And he spoke pretty well yesterday, but he's still not really sure what he is feeling or if, if there is no truth to he that. He didn't really say. He didn't dispute what Trayvon said. He didn't push back. I thought that the great response would have been to play the middle, and he could have just made a joke out of it, much like I would expect Rob Gronkowski to do if Chris or Dan, also f- football players at the time, tweeted something about Tom Brady. Uh, not being that good or whatever. Rob would have probably gone to the lectern in Foxborough the next time he spoke and said, yeah, my brother's an idiot and laughed it off. And everybody would have been like, yeah, yeah, you're right. All right. Ha, ha, ha. But Steph didn't do that. Um, he kind of let his brother's comments stand and his brother has credibility. He's an all pro defensive back in the NFL. He plays for the Dallas Cowboys. Um, he's currently hurt. And then I saw also some sentiment on social media regarding, well, maybe they're not that close. Maybe this is, they are close. I mean, Trayvon Diggs's son was on the field before the game famously because he made a lot of the shows. People were taking pictures of him. He was actually on Buffalo kickoff live. Trayvon Diggs's son given a prediction of the game against the bills and the commanders. He was playing catch with his uncle Steph before the game. The family was there to see Steph. Uh, so this family talks. Um, and again, I just keep coming back to that word credibility. It's not just some fan popping off. It's not, you know, remember it used to be news. I mean, when Zay Jones's dad used to get into Twitter arguments with people and number one, it's Zay Jones's dad, but Zay Jones's dad played in the NFL. He was a Dallas Cowboys linebacker. He was a, actually a pretty, he was a pretty good player. I mean, yeah, there are some family members where it wouldn't be news or it would be news. You know, this crackpot, I don't know if this guy has a relationship with his son or his his cousin. Um, but if it's somebody that you know has credibility, then I think it's it's pretty newsworthy that his brother keeps saying these things. And Steph Diggs never comes out and says, yeah, I keep telling him to shut his mouth or he's and he does it. But Steph lets it sit there. And I think he he knows what he's doing by letting it sit there. Um, right. Unlike in the case when he. You Steph Diggs is a savvy media guy. He knows how to work media and he's, he's pretty masterful at it. So he knows what the, doing that does. He knows what tweeting about Maddie Glab was going to do. He know he knows what he's doing here. Right. He clapped back at Stephen A. Smith. He had paragraphs in response to Maddie Glab's comments, which was an entirely different situation. But oh, I'm just saying that he does explain himself. He will go out of his way to explain himself. It's not as though he sits there and lets everything happen around him like a lot of guys might. I mean, Josh Allen, I don't ever see him doing anything on social media. So is he going to respond in that way? I mean, Josh Allen's maybe a bad example, but I think there are some people who are oblivious of what is said about them on social media. Stefan Diggs has made a 
has established a history of knowing what is said about him on social media and using social media to either defend himself or explain himself. Yeah, if he feels like he's being misrepresented in the public by someone in the media mostly, he will respond to that. Not always, but often. And if he feels that his brother is using social media to misrepresent his thoughts or feelings, um, I don't know if we should expect that he is going to address that. Maybe because it is a family member, he, he he's less willing to uh, talk about that publicly. I think he kind of indicated yesterday that if he did have an issue with something that was tweeted, he he wouldn't talk about it in the press. He'd talk about it directly with his brother. And maybe his brother, maybe the angle is just he wants Stephon Diggs to be playing for the Cowboys and is, you know, trying to drive a wedge or or at least, you know, create this perception that might lead to something like that. Uh, but if that's the case, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, maybe Stefan Diggs can provide some more clarity there. And, you know, Stefan Diggs doesn't have to speak for his brother. He can sort of let that hang out there if he wants. The, the only thing I found curious was that he seems upset at the media for asking any questions about that. That There's nothing to see there that, you know, it's, it's out of line, tread lightly uh, and, you know, I think there's a lot of fans and a lot of people watching the NFL and the media in general that are wondering what those tweets meant, wondering what, still wondering why Stefan Diggs didn't show up for the OTAs and was sent home for the first day of minicamp in the offseason and, and wondering if any of those issues are reoccurring, especially with the Bills playing worse on offense than they did a year ago. Why isn't he having the same tantrums on the sidelines, you know, what's different. And Stephon Diggs has been excellent at sitting down in front of the podium and talking to the media and expressing his thoughts and feelings throughout the season. But this particular issue yesterday was confusing uh, with the way it landed. And uh, Stephon Diggs uh, being in the news leads to more speculation from people who aren't anywhere near the building and who don't ask him questions. I'm talking about the debate shows that are out there. Uh, Stephen A. Smith and Bart Scott, uh, they have a segment that they do on Fridays in which they give their take on, it's a sponsored segment by one of the, you know, FanDuel or DraftKings or something like that. And they give some prop bets and they give, you know, what they think is going to be the over or the under. And they talked about Stefan Diggs, 77 and a half yards uh, against the Jets on Sunday. That's the prop. And I think Bart Scott went under and Stephen A. Smith went over, if you care. Um, but the discussion was about whether Joe Brady is going to make sure Stefan Diggs gets his targets to keep him happy so there's not a sideline temper tantrum. And that was <laughs> that was like, what is Joe Brady? Is Joe Brady going to be of that mind? Is Joe Brady going to run the ball like Sean McDermott wants? Um and I think that's where Bart Scott went. He said it's going to go under because he thinks Joe Brady is going to get his marching orders from McDermott. Uh, Steph Diggs went the other way and said they need to keep Steph Diggs engaged so he doesn't have a temper tantrum. Uh, I believe that's how it how the discussion went. But that's the national discussion. And it was it's all fueled by these tweets. I mean, his brother, I think that was the lead to John Warrow's uh, story in the Associated Press on this topic, was his brothers did him no favors. Um, or maybe he did. Maybe his brother is doing him a favor by putting this out there. 
maybe he thinks he's doing his brother a solid by let you know speaking for him in some way. I don't know. We don't know. And that's what that's why I asked the questions yesterday of Stefan Diggs. Something to address. Do you want to address it? If you don't, that's fair. Uh, if you want whatever. Um, I asked a couple of follow-up questions because I thought it needed a little bit of um nuance to it. He did call his brother just a fan. But uh, the Bills, for the last couple of weeks, have had in their locker room on their video message boards that uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, speech about the man in the arena and about how you need to, it's a, basically to block out outside noise. But the only man who matters is the man in the arena, not the critic. And so uh, I asked, you know, regarding that, his brother is more than just a, a fan. He is, he's in the arena. He plays in the league. Uh, and then Steph Diggs said, yeah, but he's not in this arena. He's not on our team. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And um, anyways, I thought it was, it's a, it's just a, another, another, another landmine, I think, for this team heading over the last uh, seven games. Um, and I'd be a lot more curious, and I don't know if there's anybody on the Bills that would give an honest answer on this publicly, but maybe someone has the ability to to get some off the record reporting on this. But I'd be less interested in Stefan Diggs's reaction to these tweets than the rest of the Bills locker room reaction. How does Josh Allen and Brandon Bean, Sean McDermott, and the other team leaders? Stefan Diggs is a captain. What does the other players in that captain group feel about you know a captain's brother expressing these? thoughts and, and kind of dividing the locker room and how is that being perceived and you know I don't really think this is going to have a negative effect on the bill season but something like this has the potential to have the negative effect on a team culture and locker room and the way things right are. I think this in and of itself the Tavon Diggs tweets are pretty innocuous um, but what they do is it it uh, it brings everything back to the fore. It brings back all the um, the latent um, angst uh, or all of the hibernating angst. Uh, it just brings back like here we go again. Is is kind of the the feel when something uh, like this happens. It's it, whatever Trayvon Diggs tweets. I mean, he was he's been tweeting about his brother for years, but it's like digging at a scab. You know, it's just like he just keeps digging at it uh, and things just keep getting dug uh, when it comes to Stefan Diggs. Is it his fault? Uh, you know, he has some agency over how people think of him or um, how he handles things. I mean, he could have just like I said, I think he it would have been all put to rest quickly and, and humorously if he would have just said something play, even playful about his brother being an idiot. Yeah, he's a meathead. You know, maybe he should worry about getting back on the field. Ha, 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 ha. You know, whatever. And then that would have been the end of it. Well, they had it not in the same way you just described it, but this did kind of play out, I believe, a little bit after last season in that kind of Super Bowl radio row week with Stefan Diggs did a lot of interviews where Stefan Diggs was talking about wanting Stefan Diggs on the Cowboys, wanting them to play together. And Stefan Diggs' response was more of, yeah, that's nice. He's my brother, but I'm committed to the Bills, and, and that's not what's going to happen. But even then, the reaction was, does Steph want out of Buffalo? That was because that became, I think even Pro Football Talk wrote about it. Is Stefan Diggs on the trading block? 
So every time he does this, maybe maybe Trayvon Diggs, maybe it's a brotherly prank that they have between each other, and they sit back and laugh about it. Let's see how much we can get everybody worked up. And then they sit back, which also would be stuff. I mean, even in that scenario, I'm saying, even if it's playful and just they're just having fun, uh, it's a parody. Maybe they're doing their own little parody of things. They're still obligated or they still have responsibility in this. Um because they realize what does happen every time Trayvon Diggs tweets, it becomes a story. So to just say, hey, it's our fault or it's, you know, everybody's got to leave us alone. I mean, you, that's pretty disingenuous because, as we said before, Stefan Diggs knows how this works. And Stefan Diggs did kind of reaffirm his commitment to the Bills yesterday. And it came after Adam Benini's questions, which a lot of people on Twitter seem to be critical of or kind of reacted like Stefan Diggs dunked on him, but it took that question to get Stefan Diggs to, you know, proclaim his loyalty to the Bills again. And, and maybe Stefan Diggs was unhappy that he had to do that, but I think there were fans and people that follow the team and follow the NFL that wanted to hear that or maybe needed to hear that. So whether you like the way the question was framed or the mood that it put Stefan Diggs in, I think it served its purpose and was a functional part of the media interaction this week. Yeah, it was a little passive aggressive, but I think the opening was there for Stefan Diggs to turn the tables and, and he did, he took that opportunity. You know, he, Adam used the phrase um, fully invested. And I think that's what set Stefan Diggs off. I don't blame him. It is a, it has been a repetitive question, but I think that the notion that Adam was after was uh, super uh, was a, uh, was was legitimate um but Stefan Diggs used the opportunity to turn the tables and kind of make Adam part of the show and much to uh, much to the fans glee because anytime a reporter gets dunked on it it's uh it's <laughs> it makes for makes for content um would you disagree that because I, I don't think as people we want this to happen but as characters in this play and, and it has a role in this media ecosystem sometimes you gotta lob it up there for the guy to dunk on you to get the soundbite or the quote or the information we're looking for sure. sometimes you have to ask a question that sets you up to get uh clap back to him well i didn't know how stefan diggs was going to answer the question i asked him yesterday i mean i'm i'm probably you have to be willing to you know take the take get punched in the face to <laughs> to you know to be in the to be in the bout, you know, it's I'm not saying that it's combat. I'm not saying that it's, you know, it's usually, it's not that way. And I think Stefan Diggs, uh, he and I have a pretty good respect for each other. And maybe if somebody else asked the question, he does, uh, you know, flip out a little bit more and try to de-pants him uh, in front of the cameras. But um, yeah, I mean, I didn't know how he's going to take it. I'm asking him a question uh, that was going to be difficult. He actually took some time to compose himself before he answered the question that I asked. So when he was doing that, I'm like, all right, here we go. Um, that might've been Tim Graham's time to get uh, clowned on, but the question had to be asked. You're absolutely right. Uh, if I were Carissa Thompson, I could have just made it up. I could have just said, I spoke with uh, Stefan Diggs and as his locker. And uh, he tells me that uh, Trayvon Diggs, tweets uh, are, are uh, no big deal. And, uh, what do you make of all this, Jonah? She's no longer a sideline reporter. So I talked to an industry 
source last night, for lack of a better phrase, like somebody who does this for a living and he predicted it would happen the way that it did happen. Uh, so Carissa Thompson yesterday goes on a Barstool podcast and yucking it up says she has made up sideline reports in the past uh, when a coach did not have time for her or blew her off. She would just go ahead and throw out coach speak and say, I spoke with coach uh, Jones and he says we need to run the ball better and uh, it's at whatever do convert third downs and ha ha ha. I've just made it up. Well, she is now the host of the NFL pregame, halftime, postgame shows uh, for the Amazon Thursday Night Football broadcast. Uh, and this industry expert that I spoke with, I said, what are they going to do tonight? This was a couple hours before the game. And he says, they're not going to do anything because whatever she is claiming to have done wasn't with Amazon. And it was in a job that she doesn't do for them. So she's no longer a sideline reporter. She's a studio host. And uh, and the host actually is more of an entertainer than a journalist anywhere, at least perceived to be that way. And he was right. Turned out to be right. Uh, Carissa Thompson didn't. It was ignored last night, pretty much uh, on the broadcast. And um, then she came out today with some sort of explanation slash apology. I don't know if it was really either of either of those things, but it was long uh, TLDR. Um, but I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on sideline reporters, Jonah? Uh, it was interesting to see some of the conversation after when this became a story and people like Andrea Kramer, Michelle Tafoya, Laura Oakman. Um, I'm trying to think there was just a steady stream and I was retweeting many of them as I saw them of just sideline reporters saying this is terrible for us. It makes us all look bad. Uh, it makes women in sports look bad because there are very few of these jobs to begin with. And uh, we we don't get the same slack that other people do. Um, and then part of that conversation was, let's just get rid of sideline reporters altogether. Anyway, they're they're silly. They don't serve a purpose. So there, I've just set up the conversation wherever you want to take it, Jonah. I just wanted to at least talk about it for a couple of minutes. Well, as a sports reporter, I found it offensive, and I think many of us did, that someone who at least in the past, was in a sports reporting job and a prominent one and probably paid very well, uh, was making up reports and, and admitting it so cavalierly uh, as if, you know, that's just part of how the sausage is made. Um, and I think the criticism that she's facing is good, maybe not for her personally, but for the industry and for young reporters and for fans to be educated that that's not okay, that shouldn't be done. That's not how any of us try to do our jobs. And I think it's good that a lot of other sideline reporters are chiming in and being offended and not supporting that because it would be a lot more concerning and depressing if it sort of leaked out that, yeah, this is what all the sideline reporters do. And anytime that they say that they talk to the coach at halftime, they're really just making it up or they talk to a PR person and they're pretending, you know, who was the, the color commentary guy in 1984 was Sam White. That did Reggie Rucker, former Browns yeah, yeah. receiver Reggie Rucker, who said, and this was a big story in Cleveland because he played for the Browns, and of course Sam White being the Bengals coach and the rivalry, etc. Um, Reggie Rucker went on the broadcast and said, we had dinner with Sam White last night. Not only did he say that, but he then said, put words in his mouth about a player not buying into his system. James Brooks, the running back, a prominent player, 
So it was like, what? So I think if he says, yeah, we had dinner with Sam Weish last night and he said we need to convert more third downs, Sam Weish probably is like, yeah, fine. Or the PR guy is like, well, yeah. But if you're going to take it, you're going to drop a bombshell under the guise of having dinner with the head coach and put words in his mouth about one of his own players. Yeah, that, that, that was a big one. Yeah, and his defense was Howard Cosell does this. We all do this. So it would be a lot more concerning if Carissa Thompson's defense was, yeah, I'm not doing anything differently than any other sideline reporter does. And there was an air of that. And, and I didn't go back and listen to the old podcast with Aaron Andrews, but it was referenced in some blogs that she admitted to this before. And I don't know if Aaron Andrews pushed back or said, yeah, she's done something like that too, but it didn't seem to, you know, I, I guess I should, listen to that podcast before characterizing what Aaron Andrews response was to that. But if there was another sideline reporter that kind of patted her on the back and said, yeah, we've all been there. We've all done that. Um, that would be a lot more concerning to me than just her admitting to uh, making some errors several years ago. I think somebody said it might've been 15 years ago uh, that she was talking about doing this early on uh, in her sideline reporting career. But to your point before about the, function of sideline reporters i mean i do think they serve a purpose in the television broadcast but maybe we shouldn't be calling them sideline reporters it isn't necessarily what they're doing they're more part of the broadcast and on-field personalities and to give a different look and a different sound and a different perspective on broadcasting the game but they're really sideline broadcasters uh, more so than reporting they don't give us a lot of information that can't be gleaned elsewhere the injuries you know it used to be that they would be down on the field kind of telling you about an injured player. Now that all kind of gets announced and released by the teams and the leagues itself. And the sideline reporter is really just the in and out of halftime live shot person. It's, it's not a reporting position. It's not a journalistic endeavor. And these uh, networks that have agreements with the league to broadcast the games aren't really serving the same journalistic purposes that, television news reporters, television sports reporters might, if they weren't part of the broadcast and weren't rights holders and weren't integrated into the system. And, but it, what it reminds, or what it, it it's an entirely different situation, but I kind of had the same thoughts and feelings and reaction to when uh, it was announced that Gannett had hired this Taylor Swift reporter last week. And he was a, someone who had done television reporting in the entertainment realm before and he's a Taylor Swift fan, and he his response was that, you know, this is just like these sports reporters that root for the teams and wear team logos on the air. It's really no different. And I think you just kind of see how the mindset is different for television personalities. And, and you can even see it on Twitter. You can, you can choose to be a journalist in your Twitter profile. You can choose to be a media personality. And I've never seen Yeah, are seen you an entertainer? A, right. I've never seen a writer – uh, choose media personality, even though you know you're in the media and, and you are a person with a personality, and you're it's a lot more common to see television anchors and hosts choosing that and not the journalist tab. And you know, not to be all high and mighty as a print journalist or someone who was raised in print journalism, but that is the difference. I mean, a, a print reporter would be shocked or it would be would just would never admit to doing this. Even if you had to do it, you would never go on a podcast and say that you 
made things up because you were late getting the coach interview at half. Yeah, how funny this is. Like, this is just hilarious that I did this. So it's, yeah, total, totally blithe regarding that it was even wrong. Not only, not only doing something wrong, but not even knowing that it was wrong or just laughing at the fact. But really, and she doesn't do the job anymore because she's now a host and she, according to one, um, reporter out there mentioned $700,000 uh, she was making from Amazon to do this job um, that is just shitting on her past or like the people who do that. I don't need to do that job anymore. I'm a studio host now. I don't need to do that job anymore. So it's just kind of shitting on the entire profession um, because she's, she's beyond that. She's now above that and she doesn't need, she can go ahead and make fun of her, her days as a sideline reporter. Yeah. I do want to say though, to your point about, well, two things. Um, we both teach sports journalism classes in college. Uh, my class at Canisius, the first day of class every semester, um, I asked them, you know, it's the get to know you period. Let's get to know everybody in the class. Why are you here? Uh, you know, how, what year are you in class? Where are you from? Where'd you go to high school? All that type of stuff. And I always ask, why are you taking this class? And more and more, and I'm not even saying a little bit, I would say a third, sometimes upwards to a half of my class will say they want to be a sideline reporter. Um, I don't think that that was ever really a thing. It was you wanted to do play-by-play or color, and a sideline reporter is the thing you did to get to somewhere else in the business. It was kind of a stepping stone. But um, a lot of my students over the years have said that's what they want to do. And but I will say, and to your point about being an entertainer or like in the NFL, the NFL is the last league with that barrier where you're not allowed to talk to the coach during the game. You do it in the NBA and the NHL and Major League Baseball, um, where you have actual, I think, print reporter, people with print reporter chops doing that job on Fox during the World Series. Um you know, uh, Emily Kaplan uh, on ESPN with NHL. She was a former Sports Illustrated uh, reporter, used to work for Peter King's team on the Monday morning quarterback, got a job at ESPN.com as a reporter. She was a print person. It wasn't as though it was, you know, just uh, a pretty face. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, Buster Olney has done or different guys when they put them down on the field. Uh, Ken Rosenthal, they're down and they're talking to the manager in the dugout. It's um, it's not that um, that NFL stereotype of um, somebody down there to look pretty and to give us uh, get us from, you know, halftime back to the game or to get us from the the um, the inactive report to kickoff. Um, there's act so there is, I think, in other sports where the sideline reporter is more integral and actually um, practical and useful. Uh, whereas the NFL version of it or the college football version of it is still that the old stereotype of why are they even here? Eye candy. Sorry. I agree. I, yeah. Uh, what do you agree uh, regarding uh, the Sabres? As, uh, and again, we're recording this uh, prior to the game at Winnipeg tonight. Uh, Tage Thompson is out. He's week to week with an upper body injury, looked like a wrist or a forearm. Also had that uh, foot or ankle injury 
um, Tuesday night. Uh, he is their third leading scorer with 13 points through the how, – how many games have they played? 16? 16 um, games, 7, 8, and 1. Yeah, 7, 8, and 1, 16 games. Um, but you're out there at the Sabres a lot, Jonah. Your, your state of this team following – as Kyle Ocposo is about to play his 1,001st NHL game. Yeah, I mean it's it's early in the season, so you can't get too carried away with the season being over. But it's it's a uh, unsettling situation to have the Sabres top line center and their all star last year, the leading scorer the past two seasons, and possibly their best player, at least their best forward, out for at least a month, maybe up to two months. He had gotten injured earlier in the game with getting cut on the leg with a skate, came back and then sustained a, a wrist hand injury blocking a shot, and the Sabres weren't playing great with Tage Thompson. They weren't scoring goals at the same rate they had been a year ago. The power play is not producing, and Tage Thompson is probably their biggest weapon on the power play, and, and I think there's maybe ways with the lines at five-on-five five that they can make up for his absence, but it's going to be difficult to uh, replace his shot and his ability and his production on the power play, which was already – in a bit of a funk and something that's keeping the Sabres from realizing their potential early on this season. The Sabres are not, they are better in some ways defensively, but still maybe not playing the best defensive hockey, especially from the forwards that they need to be a playoff team. They're not getting great goaltending. Uh, Eric Comrie has been their best goaltender before he got hurt. And now he's playing again tonight. Devin Levi, who is the starter coming into the season and was their best goaltender at the end of last season has been their worst performing goaltender of the three goalies so far. Um, you know, the Sabres need, the Sabres need a spark, whether it's bringing in some new player from the trade market or Rochester, or some people would say it's signing Patrick Kane or jumbling up the lineup or playing a different way. They're not trending to be a team that's going to make the playoffs and they need to do something or they need to rediscover something about what they were as a team at various points last season and find that quickly before they find themselves in a position like the Bills where uh, they're not out of it, but they're in a very tough position to get back into it. Yeah, they're, uh, they've been an interesting team, though. I mean, they've, uh, they've woken up. I mean, they need to get there a little bit more. Obviously, the first week, two weeks of the season, they were uh, a total funk, looked like zombies. Like they were still trying to figure it out. Then they seemed to figure it out a bit. And then goaltending injuries, Devin Levi not being able to have any kind of consistency. Uh, but they've at least been um, worth a worthwhile watch uh, for the last few weeks, as opposed to the beginning of the season where I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll check back on these guys uh, in, in a while. Um, it's uh you know, Tage Thompson being hurt and potentially for a while, it really puts a damper on uh, that option of switching over to being a Sabres fan for those who are done with the Bills. You know, it's uh, it's hard to be invested in in a Sabres team that has been inconsistent with Tage Thompson. Take him out of the um, the environment and then have people be uh, excited about getting into the Sabres, especially with the bye week coming up. I think the bill the um, I think the Sabres play four times during the when the Bills are in between games. I think the Sabres play four or maybe even six times. Um, so I think it's, it's a four good, games, but it's a four games on the road. 
Yeah, that yeah, yeah. And but just to kind of settle in and get in a groove with being a Sabres fan because there is a rhythm to even being a fan, you know, during the during the Sabres season. You know, being cognizant of when the next game is. Uh right now it's still that part of the season for me where I'm like, are they playing tonight or not? Or you're pleasantly surprised when a game is on. Oh shoot, I forgot they were playing tonight. Um, but then you get in that rhythm eventually of, yep, the game's tomorrow. Yep, the game is Friday. Yep, the game is tonight. Um so maybe that maybe the the Sabres can like the Bills steal a couple and without Tage Thompson still still do some damage in the standings and hold down the fort until he gets back. Maybe Comrie's return does something too, like you say, Jonah. Um they they begin a stretch here. So this is playing in Winnipeg tonight is the first game of a three-game road trip, which to this point in the season is their longest road trip of the season. And I believe their first real road trip. I think they've had consecutive road games where they came home in between earlier in the season. They play at home on Black Friday against Pittsburgh, which is a team they just lost 4 nothing against on the road the last time they faced. And then they go on a four-game road trip that will be obviously longer than this three-game road trip. So they played seven of the next eight on the road. Perhaps a tough game at home without Tage Thompson. Alex Tuck's coming back into the lineup after being hurt. Um, they are getting healthier, but they're not really a fully formed, healthy lineup playing with chemistry and continuity. They haven't quite gotten that, especially in the recent weeks. Uh, Dylan Cousins missed a couple games. He comes back with a face shield. He doesn't seem to be quite himself. Maybe being on the top line and Tage Thompson's center spot will reignite his game. But, you know, this is a very, I think, critical point in the schedule because seven of eight on the road. Uh, with the Tate Thompson injury, this could be a point where the Sabres string together some losses and kind of lose the thread on, on being a playoff team this year. But as you've mentioned on this podcast, sometimes NHL teams find themselves on road trips. And that's a real being, thing, getting away, yeah, the whole bonding yeah. aspect of it. It's why some teams occasionally will go away for training camp because they want to expedite that process. But yeah, the first extended stretch on the road is. I think uh, is historically a, an important time for any hockey team. Yeah, and if the Sabres can come out of this eight-game stretch with getting maybe eight to ten points from what is a you know a difficult portion of the schedule, uh, maybe they can get some confidence and some belief, and that'll help to get the season going in a better direction. But really, the issue that they're having so far is uh, they've been rather consistent, but consistently inconsistent, and they're not getting – that, you know, they have fewer points than games played, and that's just not going to get it done. And it seems okay in the standings right now, but eventually they have to start stringing together two points after two points after two points. And if you wait too far into the season before that happens, it's going to be too late. And, and this could be a team that plays better and is better uh, than it was a year ago and doesn't get any better results and extends the longest playoff drought in NHL history and if the Jets sneak into the NFL playoffs it'll be the longest postseason drought in North American sports uh, for those of you who are just listening to this podcast and not watching on YouTube I'm about to put a word up on the screen for Jonah uh, I just have a question based on something he just said um, uh, how do you say this word schedule how many how many syllable how many syllables are in this word it's two, but it, I, I believe I and, and other people pronounce it with kind of two and a half. Schedule. I think it's, it, it was a clear three to me. Schedule. Well, okay. I just heard you how say, you, I, guess you I say never it? picked how that up before. Schedule, Schedule, huh? 
schedule. 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 Maybe I'm saying it wrong. I mean, it's I think also like right. the, the position uh, that Yogi Berra plays is also a fun one for me because when I hear it, I think I'm saying it wrong. How do Yogi Berra plays what position or played what position? Catcher. Catcher. That's the way I say it too. But then sometimes I hear catcher. All right. But you don't have a, you don't go play catch in the backyard. You play catch. See, I spell it, I pronounce it schedule, like S C H E J E W U L E. Right. You got a U in there and I you add an extra syllable. I was just, I might be doing it wrong. I Well, you know what? Hey, we're on the air right now. Let's check. Let's see what Miriam Webster has to say about this word. Two syllables, schedule, S-K-E-J-U with an umlaut over it, L. I'll even give the, uh, let's see if I can get it on the air here. Do you think this is a Buffalo accent thing? Is this how we say it here in Western New York? No, I don't think so. I'm trying to play it, but it won't allow me because uh, because we're we're zooming. I think it's uh, the zoom is trumping my in my uh, audio system here. Uh, Jonah, a local college hoops. Um, what are we learning? Is it still too CERN too? Mm. Again, struggling to put words together. Is it still too soon to know what we're looking at yet? Well, in a lot of ways, it's always too soon for some of these teams because in the non-conference season, um, not that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter in the same way that the conference games do, and you can have a poor non-conference season and still have a good season if you do well uh, later on in your conference games. The Niagara women were a good example of that last year, but it's not always the case for a team like St. Bonaventure uh, in the Atlantic 10, potentially being a multi-bid league sometimes. And they're predicted to be one of the two or three better teams in that league and the most experienced team in the country. Um, these early season games take on more importance and St. Bonaventure winning on a neutral four last night against Oklahoma city in Brooklyn playing Auburn now tonight in the championship game of that legends classic. Um, they have opportunities to, build resume, get resume building wins. And, you know, losing at home to Canisius hurt St. Bonaventure in that regard, but beating power five teams, you know, they're now seven and three against teams from power conferences over the past three seasons, an opportunity tonight maybe to get an eighth win. And that will help in March and on selection Sunday that could play out also for seeding if St. Bonaventure happens to win the Atlantic 10 and doesn't need in that large bid these type of wins play into how you're seated and just how you're perceived later in the season for the rest of the big four. How about this? Let me ask you, let me ask you in this way, because I I'm curious, this is what I'd be asking you if we were sitting at Elmo's and I wanted to educate myself on college hoops, because as long as the bills and uh, are playing, I'm still detached and I can't really get into it. So can you give me Jonah, the Bronstein enterprises power rankings for the big four? And why? In terms of how they're playing right now, or no? In terms, no, no. The, in the season outlook. We haven't really likely. done a season preview type segment on this podcast yet. So educate me on what who's supposed to be what. Right. Well, the Niagara women are picked as the favorites in the MAC. They've never been that before. They got to the final last year. Got to the women's NIT for the first time last year, and have an opportunity to do something that they've never done as a program. And they're the only big four basketball team, men or women, that has not made it to the NCAA tournament. 
with the Parker sisters back, local girls that went to Cardinal O'Hara and a few talents that they brought in from the transfer portal. When the dust settles in March, they're probably the team that's most likely to win its tournament and make it to the NCAAs. They haven't gotten off to a great start. They've lost their last two. The starting point guard, best player, Angel Parker's hurt and not playing. Um, after them, St. Bonaventure was picked third in the Atlantic 10 and some other magazines, preseason projections had them maybe as the number two team in the Atlantic 10. And in that league being the number two team, potentially that's an NCAA tournament season, even if you don't win your conference tournament. Um, they lost at home against Canisius. They had a win against Longwood that wasn't super impressive in the opener. Um, so not living up to immediate expectations, but getting this win against Oklahoma State and now having another opportunity here against Auburn and some other um, challenging games coming up in the non-conference season, they can certainly get back to, by the time Atlantic 10 play begins, being in that mix of the top two or three team or with Dayton as, as the favorite in that league. And the Canisius men who, you know, that's an excellent win for them, winning at the Riley Center, are were picked third in the MAC, and, and that's the highest they've been picked in a number of years. And they brought back or they lost the fewest amount of players in the transfer portal, which the MAC, the Metro Atlantic Conference, was a league that got hit very hard by top players and star players uh, transferring out to different schools. Uh, Niagara being a team that was better than Canisius last year and thought if they brought everybody back, might have been one of the favorites in the league. And their top player, Noah Thomason, transferred to Georgia and another good players transferred out. Canisius, so Canisius is not going to be an at-large team under any circumstances and doesn't really have the schedule to make that work. But uh, winning a game like that at St. Bonaventure, even with some injuries that they have, Tosh Stavetsky is now out. He played in that game, but he he's their best player, and he missed the most recent game. Xavier Long is a starter who hasn't played yet this season. Joe Jones, a, a six foot eleven center who from Buffalo, transferred back into Canisius and got hurt in the first game. He's out now. But if they stay healthy or they get healthy and everybody's there in max season, this could be one of the better Canisius teams and one of the better Canisius seasons in a number of years. And everybody else, I think it's too early to really tell, or the expectations are rather low with St. Bonaventure women having a new coach who's the old coach, but in, in the early stages of a rebuild. And UB new coach with George Halkovage, early results have not been great. Um, curious to see if they get any better. All right. Anything else you want to touch on, Jonah? Uh, it's high school football games heading out there now. Section six champions against the Section five champions. See who's going to keep going to the state playoffs. Buffalo Extreme ABA basketball team is ranked number four in the country, as some would say. Well, you got to watch four. Drinking my Channel 4 coffee mug. I got to start drinking yeah. it left-handed, left-handed coffee. So that way I can show off my logo. But I'm right-handed, and my coffee warmer is over here on my right. Speaking of uh, fours, you know, the Bills are have a 3-1 and record in games that are broadcast locally on Channel 4, and each of the next three games will be shown on your local CBS affiliate, and maybe that's a trend that will continue and the Bills can turn around this season that way. Let's see. The Bills are also one and four. Wait, one, two, three, four. Five. Yeah, they're one and four in, pri in prime time this year. They lost at the Jets on Monday night, on, uh, Monday night to start the season. 
They beat the New York Giants barely on Sunday night football to make them one and one. Then against Tampa Bay, they lost that to make them one and two. They lost uh, Cincinnati on Sunday night, and then they lost versus Denver on Monday night. You know, this is, these are not primetime players. So they don't play again on primetime until Los Angeles uh, on December 23rd. But, yeah, you got to watch four. So the Bills do have, like you say, three straight games on CBS coming up if they run the table there with wins over the Eagles and the Chiefs, uh, we'll be deleting this podcast. This never you happened. Know, another, thing, another thing that happened well, a week ago, but we didn't have a podcast since then, just to kind of acknowledge, East Aurora boys soccer team won the state championship, and this was in Class B. No West New York team has ever won in Class B, Class A, Class AA, anything higher than Class C, and it's only the fifth, fourth or fifth, but I believe the fifth, boys soccer state championship by any school at any level from western new york so wow we're a team with the biggest championship victory by a western new york soccer team ever holy smokes that's impressive why do you think that is is just soccer in downstate too just too competitive a lot of it has to do with rochester being better than the buffalo teams year in and year out and i think that gap has closed ever so slightly with some recent teams. Clarence got to the States and Lancaster, but historically over the years, there's been decades where the boys soccer teams did not get past that far West regional game against Rochester. And then I I do think some of that is also the case when you play downstate teams, Syracuse teams. I mean, Buffalo has some good soccer players and some good soccer teams, but has always seemed to be not as good as Rochester, Syracuse, and some other areas. All right. Well, congratulations to East Aurora uh, on making Western New York history. Uh, Jonah, thanks for this. Um, Maybe I'll catch you later. And uh, to everybody out there, please uh, subscribe to Tim Graham and Friends. Uh, Hit the like button. uh, Rate us. Do whatever you uh, can do on your platform to show us that you appreciate us and listen slash watch. And uh, we will come back to you again soon, uh, hopefully early next week. Uh, we need to start getting doubling up a little bit, Joan. I know we talk about it, and uh, I am to blame mostly for that. Almost enti- No, I'm entirely to blame for it. I don't even just want to qualify. I'm entirely to blame for that. But uh, we'll start maybe doubling up here on some podcasts just to, to break up Bills and Sabres subject matter, or we can do some specialty uh, college hoops shows uh, like we've done in the past. We need to maybe do that a little bit more. So uh, next week please... we can we can do a post mortem on the UB football season because they'll play their last game Tuesday night at home against Eastern Michigan. Sure, sure. Just got a preview in the schedule. We can sit week. out in the stands uh, and do the podcast live during the game uh, against Eastern Michigan, and we'll double the attendance. Um, thank you to everyone out there for listening and or watching Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business in our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services 
by offering a wide array of consulting and outsource solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you.